Good afternoon to our listeners. This is Jonathan Harris. And my name is Andrew Gilmore. Coming to you live for the third episode of season two of Law and Society Talk, brought to you by the members of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell, with the generous space and airtime of cornellradio.com. I am Jonathan Harris, co-editor-in-chief and a senior in the ILR school, and with me here is Andrew, one of our staff writers, who is a recent graduate of the School of Arts and Sciences. We thank you for tuning in and look forward to getting underway this afternoon after this short break. Today we have a very special guest with us, Joseph Margulies, Professor of Law and Government at Cornell University. Professor Margulies was the counsel of record in the 2004 Supreme Court case Razul v. Bush on detentions at Guantanamo Bay Naval Station, and Guerin v. Omar, and Munaf v. Guerin, the 2008 cases on detentions at Camp Cropper in Iraq. He currently represents Abu Zubaydah, who was held in CIA black sites and whose interrogation in 2002 and 2003 prompted the Bush administration to draft the infamous torture memos. Wearing his academic hat, as he likes to call it, Professor Margulies is published by the Yale University Press and Simon & Schuster, writing on 9-11, Guantanamo Bay, and other related topics. Perhaps most importantly for us, Professor Margulies is also the staff advisor for the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell. Thank you for joining us, Professor Margulies. Happy to be here, guys. Very happy to be here. That's great. So, uh, Andrew, I know I've, I've heard that we have some, some recent news out of our adopted home, Ithaca, New York. Uh, would you like to start us off today? Thank you, John. And thank you, Professor Margulies, uh, for being with us. You know, I also want to personally thank you for uh, advising me in my time at Cornell. You were my major advisor, and, you know, uh, your class crime punishment was particularly interesting. So, thank you for being with us. Um, I think I want to start in start talking about the um, Ithaca proposal that just came out yesterday um, that you had told us you were working on and thinking about, and it's a plan to replace the city's police force with a more civilian-led agency, which, to my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong, would create a kind of bifurcated system where we have armed public safety workers and unarmed community solution workers. Um, and, and they would basically be sent out to calls or reports um, on a, you know, varying basis, depending on, on how we wanted to apply those different workers. So I guess I, you know, since you, you said that you um, have been working on this, if, if you could give a maybe more beautiful um, description, I guess, of, of the proposal than I just given. Uh, sure. Um... So this plan, which is still in draft form, um, emerges ultimately out of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last summer and the uprisings and protests that, that followed that. In the wake of those protests, Governor Cuomo in New York uh, issued an executive order that directed all municipalities that have police forces uh, to uh, develop a plan for how to improve their delivery of um, law enforcement services uh, to make it more inclusive, more responsive, to address some of the problems that were so visibly on display uh, when George Floyd was murdered. Um, and in response to that, the city of Ithaca, along with Tompkins County, 
um, convened a, a group, uh, and I was part of that group, to reimagine public safety. Um, and this plan is the, as I say, it's still in draft form, is the current proposal that will be sent to, uh, current version of the proposal that will be sent to Governor Cuomo uh, in April. The, the draft has been circulated for uh, community input and, and, and feedback. Um, and, and there was a lot of community input that went into the draft. Um, and as you mentioned, <clears throat> the core, at least with respect to Ithaca, the core um, innovation is to eliminate the Ithaca Police Department and fold it into a new agency, um, which will be led by a civilian, not a law enforcement official, um, that uh, divides itself into two uh, type of, of, of staff. One will be uniform armed officers. That's where the police used to be. And the other will be a group of um, uh, community solutions officers. We're still, there's still debate about what the name will be, community health officers. Um, and the idea is the overarching philosophy is one that I've been pushing for years now, is that the police should respond to only those calls for which they alone are qualified, right? There is a, a small number of tasks that the police are asked to do that they alone can do. Nobody else can do what they are, are charged to do. And that's all they should respond to. Much of what the police in any jurisdiction are called out to do does not require a police officer and doesn't require someone who's in uniform and someone who is armed uh, and someone who is uh, representative of an institution that uh, historically has had such a, a legacy of mistrust in um, uh, distressed communities. So the idea is, look, if you want to eliminate friction between two groups, stop rubbing them together. Right. Um, and so, you're, so we are separating uh, to the extent possible, or at least this is the ambition, to try to separate to the extent possible armed police officers um, from uh, distressed communities and limit the police to that which only they can do. Now, that, that's sorry. The, go ahead. I'm I can sorry. just jump in real quick. Yes. So yes. that sounds like a really, that does sound like a revolutionary yet very common sense idea. And, you know, a lot of the grievances that we've heard come out of uh, you know, the Black Lives Matters movement and uh, the George Floyd murders that, you know, the police aren't necessarily equipped to handle these mental health emergencies, these, these issues where a psychologist or a social worker might be more apt to handle the situation. So are those the kinds of situations that you're talking about? And if not, would, could you uh, expand a little bit more? Um, there are a lot, you know, during the work that I, I did as part of this committee, um, we learned that a significant fraction and maybe over half of the Ithaca Police Department calls for service are not in what the chief of police would say require a police officer. So there's a huge range. One of them is certainly the mental health calls. Um, another are just the, the welfare checks um, uh, house checks, 
uh, a person is maybe intoxicated. Um, uh, the, the kind of calls for service that, um, you know, derisively, and I don't mean this uh, in a pejorative way, uh, the, unfortunately, the reality is we have so conditioned folks uh, to call 911 when they have a problem that they call for, a, you know, the proverbial cat in the tree. Someone help me get my cat out of the tree. Well, that's not a call for the police. The, 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 the most tragic are the mental health calls. Um, what, the, what the plan actually envisions is that we would partner with um, this, new, this new entity, which is you know, tentatively called the Community Solutions and Public Health Department, what, what, whatever that means. The name's not as important. The name is just branding, right? The, the, real, the devil's in the details. And, and the important thing is this division of labor and division of responsibility. But another feature of the plan is to partner with um, uh, existing nonprofit organizations and train them with a particular expertise in responding to mental health calls. And they would actually be the ones separate entirely from this other organization that would go, you know, there's, there's a guy who looks like he might've overdosed, or there's a guy who is, um, you know, obviously intoxicated uh, and needs the help from someone who is, uh, uh, as you say, trained in conflict de-escalation and dealing with the mentally ill. Uh, and so another part of the plan is to fund that separate institution and make sure that they are uh, uh, equipped to handle these those particular kind of calls. Yeah, so I guess I, I just have a you know quick follow up question on on this kind of topic that we're on you know with the specifics of the plan. Um, how how I guess would it you know as we said you know the details are still being worked out but how would it work a call would come in and, and how do we as the kind of the operator on the end of the line determine what is needed and how would you respond to, to those who would say that given the unknown circumstances of, of even someone having an unfortunate mental health crisis or an intoxicated state, how do we you know, know that you know, an armed officer won't be needed? How do we know that there is not you know, so much unclear about the situation that de-escalation might not work? How would you respond right. to people who- No, that's a great question. So Ithaca is not the first to explore this kind of alternative. Uh, the solution that Ithaca has come up with is, is potentially pretty radical, but the, um, and I say potentially because, you know, the, the ink's not dry yet. We don't know exactly. Right, of course. Right, and it's important, it's important to stress that, you know, you don't want to get caught up in the public relations hype here. It, it, yeah. Nothing is certain until it's certain. Um, yeah. But a lot of jurisdictions have traveled this path. And the, the one that, 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 that traveled at first and where the experiment is most well established is, is actually in Eugene, Oregon. And Eugene developed this alternative provider model for um, public health or mental health kind of calls back in the 80s. And it's since expanded and it's an embedded part of uh, public safety and, and community well being in Eugene. Um, and the, the, the direct answer to your question is you have to have very careful training for the 911 dispatchers. 
and a call in Eugene will come to the same 911 dispatchers as who send out the police. And they are trained to ask questions about what's happening and the behavior of the person that you're calling about uh, and, and what is known about them, what background there is, and make a judgment based on that um, flowchart of information, if you will. Yeah. And last year, um, uh, the, 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 the clinic, uh, that it's a mental health clinic that does these, these mental health calls in lieu of the police, responded to something like 15,000 calls. And in only 2% um, were they forced to uh, conclude after they got there, oops, this is a call where we need the police as well. So after a while, relay that message and, and, and bring precisely, the precisely. then you go and get the police. There, there are other models uh, around the country. I mean, as I say, that's the, that's sort of the grandfather of them all, the, the, the model in Eugene, but there are others where the police and the mental health providers co-respond. They both go together and the police are sort of in yeah. the background. Um, I personally don't like that. And I think that the model in Eugene is a better one if you adequately train the um, uh, dispatchers, they know which calls are likely to require the police and which calls aren't. And they get quite good at it, uh, but, it's a, but it's a training. It's a, it's a long process. It's a training process. So I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your response to, to this. You know, I know during the, the presidential election um, last year, there were a number of television ads that the Trump campaign, that the RNC ran uh, to some effect of, you know, there, there was like an old lady sitting in her home in Seattle uh, and she tried to call the police as her home was being burgled, but uh, the police didn't pick up. Um, you know, could you just address some of those fears for folks who might be diametrically opposed to this Proposal? Well, look, you never respond to fear mongering. I mean, fear mongers right. are going to do what they're going to do. That particular ad was was debunked as as uh, disingenuously disingenuously false. Certainly. Um, however, the real the real purpose of this initiative is to make sure that when the police are genuinely needed. That is when only a police officer can handle the situation, a police officer is in fact available to go, right? The real problem that you have now in Ithaca and other jurisdictions is the police spend so much time on things that don't really require the, a police officer and with staffing levels low that when they are called for something that genuinely calls for a police officer, uh, they're out on other calls. So it is precisely to meet the kind of concern that that uh, fabricated concern in that particular case that that ad uh, uh, raises that this initiative is meant to address, right? Um, you know, when I was during one of our meetings, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. Um, the chief of police, who's a big in Ithaca, was a big supporter of this idea. He he em embraced it. He oh, said, wow. "We got a call um, uh, sometime before the meeting." of a, a little three-year-old who was lost uh, and the family didn't know where the kid was. Well, when in calls like that, you want uh, 
the police involved and searching and, and other people searching and, and taking information immediately because the first three hours are the most important period, right? Absolutely. I mean, I mean that's it, absolutely critical. We just know empirically the first three hours are critical to, to, to finding a lost child. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> he wants to have police officers available in those three hours. He doesn't want to have them off on calls that don't require a police officer. Because, you know, what's more important than finding a three-year-old kid who's lost, right? Very little. Right. Um, so the whole, yeah, so the whole purpose of it is to free the police up to that which only they can do. And once yeah, you look at that, once you start to look at that carefully, you discover that there's really very little that only an officer can do. And so you reserve, the, reserve their staffing for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that's a side of the argument that, you know, at least people on the more conservative side of things tend to not really acknowledge, right? That it's not so much just about, you know, stopping the police from, you know, cutting down on crime. It's about the police being able to do their job and not spending half of their resources on, on what could be done by, by those who are specified specifically, you know, trained to handle those cases. So I think that makes a lot of sense. That's um, precisely, precisely yeah, right. So I think one question I have, you know, is, is we started this off by saying nothing certain for sure. Obviously it has to, to go through several processes. Do you know what those processes are? Do you know what needs to be done? What might change? Yeah, there's, we could know? We're, we're, we're at fairly early stages. As I said, it's going to be it's 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 going off to community members for their input. Um, there's a lot that's left uh, unspecified in the draft, uh, and the draft is publicly available. I'm sure it's on the city's website, yeah. um, but it's but it is in draft form. And even if it's even if it's a if this becomes the final version, it doesn't become law until it's funded. So it has to go through the. Uh, Ithaca legislature, the council, city council, and they've got to fund it. Um, and I mean, it's a major uh, uh, reconfiguration, if you will, uh, of a department in um, the uh, Ithaca city budget. Um, and that'll, you know, I presume it'll be subject to, to debate and public hearings and so on. So, right. you know, we're in, the, we're in the sausage making period now and query what the end product will look like. And, and, and though I was involved in, an early, in, the, in the early stages of this in the, the, the preceding few months, this since you know like last fall, um, and I'm cautiously optimistic, my fingers are crossed, uh, but, it, but it could break ugly. And this could end up being just a elaborate exercise in rebranding that, that functionally changes nothing, in which case I will not be a, a, a supporter of it. We'll see. I, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm hopeful that it will be a, a really meaningful shift uh, to intelligent reform. That's great to hear. And you you know I I'm not sure if you've been interacting with any of these issues at all, but it's my understanding that the police union has had a fantastically hard time negotiating a contract with the city of Ithaca for the past I think it's six or seven years, something like that. Um, I'm wondering, because I haven't seen any comment from the police union, uh, if you've heard anything, what the police union thinks about it. Oh, that's a good question. No, the answer is I haven't. I, I think that's a really important 
question to ask, but I have not heard what their view is on this. It's they may still be digesting it. They, you know, it's a 95 page plan. Right. They'll be trying to take it all in. But, but yeah. the answer is I don't know. I definitely I'm very curious to see what the police union has to say. Uh, you know, I would hope that it's, this is not an attack on the police. This is this right. is let's ask the police to do what they're trained to do. Right. And let's Certainly. not ask them to do the things they're really not trained to do. It won't even necessarily, I mean, you know, perhaps slightly, but it doesn't seem like it would necessitate a rather significant cutting of, you know, the police's role in the community or ability to do its, its own job. It seems like, right, this is, this is as we said, aiding the police. Well, well, th 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 that is certainly the intention, not so much to aid the police, um, as to aid the entire community of which the police are part, right? Th this is meant to be a win-win. Um, and, uh, but, but one of the things that's still as yet unspecified is how are you gonna delineate the, the calls to which only the police can go or, or the calls to which the um, community health officers yeah, can go? Yeah, that seems like the, the core Right. That, that, that is one of the core. There are a number of core. There are a number of really important questions that are yet unanswered. What but at you least you're talking is, in a system like like this, where it's one or one, not um, like those alternative systems we we're discussing, where perhaps a, an officer might go, um, you know, with a trained mental health professional in the kind of background. Right. And all these different things are variations that that. Uh, in the fullness of time, Ithaca will, if it's adopted by the city council, will, um, these are bridges they'll have to cross. And, uh, you know, the, the path they take will make all the difference between whether this is a successful or, or an unsuccessful uh, innovation. Sure. Um, now, I, I kind of wanted to shift the topic a little bit slightly towards Cornell itself. Um, you know, I'm not sure if, if you were following um, you know, the end of last semester, there was a rather, you know, heavy campus debate in the student assembly regarding campus police disarmament. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how, if any, you think this proposal might provide some momentum to that student push. Do you think that there is a relevant distinction between campus police and general police that needs to be taken into consideration when discussing these types of reforms? Um, yeah. Well, so I think that's a great question too. I'm also on the public safety advisory committee uh, at Cornell. So I'm part of the committee. It's a, a group of students. S students are really important on it um, and faculty and staff and the um, chief of the Cornell Police Department um, who are uh, part of a committee to um, uh, reimagine public safety uh, on campus as well. Um, those meetings have not yet culminated in a plan, so I'm not free to share um, uh, our, our deliberations. They're, they're internal still. Um, but, but I think I can say that um, my uh, personal view about shrinking the blue footprint and asking the uh, police to do only that which they alone are, are, are qualified to do and no more is a view that I have held for a number of years and does not depend on whether I'm 
talking about uh, a police officer at a university or a police officer in a municipality. Well, that's interesting to hear. And, you know, Andrew and I were curious, have you discussed this with your students in crime and punishment? Is it a topic that you plan on discussing? Uh, what do you think? Oh, yeah. Um, so crime and punishment, this term, which is government 3121 and American Studies 3121, uh, has really been substantially redone the syllabus from past years. And really? I'm, I'm uh, bringing in a lot more material on policing in the wake of George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor's murder, um, Ahmaud Arbery's killing down at, in Georgia. Um, and uh, one of the things we will talk about is um, how I came, not just me, but, but um, the short answer to your question is yes, we will be talking about one uh, path to reform being um, what some people in the literature call surgical policing as an alternative to what um, is called saturation policing, which is you just pour police into an area and you stop everything that moves. Uh, stop and frisk is an example of saturation policing. Mm. Um, and what I, my, my vision, as well as the, as the vision of many others, I don't want to say it's unique to me, is, is really just the opposite of that. You, you use police very strategically in collaboration with uh, neighborhood groups and other municipal agencies to, to solve you know, very, very um, specific crime and disorder related problems. So yeah, that will figure in part of uh, the curriculum this semester. Great, yeah, that sounds super interesting. I mean, you know, I know we spent a, at least a, a good portion of our time discussing policing but, um, you know, it definitely seems like there's been a lot of momentum added to that discussion um, and sounds great for your class. Um, so I think this was a great segment, super informative for me personally about this plan. Um, and I think John is going to kick off this next segment discussing Supreme Court and the new administration um, and the kind of remaking of, of the court over the last six months. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So as, uh, as many of our listeners uh, may know or who have been following, uh, we've talked about the 6-3 conservative majority on the court a lot and in reference to the Affordable Care Act and, and many other constitutional and, and legal issues. Um, earlier this Monday, actually, the, the Biden administration asked the Supreme Court to cancel an upcoming oral argument uh, on a policy introduced under the Trump administration backing work requirements for those who receive health care under Medicaid. Uh, and then even earlier this month, the Biden administration told the Supreme Court that they were switching the federal government's position on the challenge to the Affordable Care Act. In January, the Biden administration revoked Trump's census plan, which was a point of heated discussion, uh, both on the court and in, in legal and policy circles. Um, I believe the Senate Judiciary Committee, maybe the House Judiciary Committee, but one of them for sure has a hearing coming up uh, on the Supreme Court's use of the shadow docket. That's been another topic of discussion. So Andrew and I were, were curious to hear what your thoughts were on the tensions between the Biden administration, which is just about, I believe, a month old uh, this week, and the new conservative majority in the Supreme Court. Well, I think it's too early to tell 
whether there's a conflict between the Biden administration and the court, because most of the positions that you've just described, and I, I think you've summarized them really well, um, uh, have not led to uh, decisions by the court yet. Um, so we don't know how the court's going to, uh, going to take this. Um, you know, the challenge to the Affordable Care Act, of course, is brought by states. And so the right. Biden administration changing its position won't moot out the, the litigation. Uh, it, just, it just says that the, the, the federal government puts its finger on one side of the scale rather than another. Um, and whether that will make a difference uh, remains to be seen. But then, of course, you know, you've got the, the problem of the counterfactual because you don't know what they would have done the Trump administration had maintained its position because that's no longer the case. Um, so it's hard to tell at this point. We also don't know just how much in the fullness of time the uh, Biden administration will really be dramatically different from the Trump administration. You've identified ones that, that clearly were different, but we knew we know from, for instance, when the Obama, Obama, uh, the Obama administration <laughs> replaced the Bush administration, a lot of people were saying, I was not among them, but a lot of people said, it'll be completely different. It's gonna be a whole new sheriff in town and so on. And he really wasn't. Uh, their position vis-a-vis -vis the Supreme Court, was, uh, particularly on a lot of issues, criminal justice and war on terror, um, uh, was marked by as much continuity as discontinuity from the Bush administration. And clearly in some things they did much, much better. And I'd, I would much rather have the, the Obama administration than the Bush administration or the Trump administration. Um, but the change was not quite as radical, no, was not at all as radical as a lot of people thought it would be. And you know, the Biden administration so far, all the signs about the Biden administration look really promising. And I've been pleasantly surprised um, it seems more progressive than a lot of people were fearing. Um, but I, I, they're, you know, surrounding themselves with a lot of Biden, uh, a lot of Obama people. They haven't even named the solicitor general yet. So it's a little bit early to say it's going to be a, a whole new game. One thing that I think will be different and could be very important, Merrick Garland, who was, had served on the DC circuit and was just named by uh, President Biden as uh, his pick for attorney general. And I think that's a home run pick. I, I have a yeah. lot of respect for Merrick Garland. I think he, I've argued in front of him before in the DC circuit. Oh, really? Yeah, I think he's a great judge. Well, I guess he's not a judge anymore. Um, um, at, his, uh, at his confirmation hearing yesterday, he talked about how he was gonna make domestic terrorism much more of a priority. I think that could be a really meaningful change um, from the Trump administration, but I don't think that'll bring him in conflict with the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court will be very happy to hear that. Uh, so, so I think that will mark a difference from the last administration, but not a difference with the court. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely fair to say. I've heard a lot of uh, democratic pundits and, and politicians who have been worrisome about, about this court and what it might mean for the Affordable Care Act, uh, what it might mean for abortion rights, for 
for LGBTQ plus rights, they've said that, you know, it might be a good choice for the Biden administration to preempt bad decisions by the court, bad decisions for uh, if you're a Democrat and pass, you know, a federal abortion bill of rights, uh, uh, a gay marriage law that would, you know, essentially codify Obergefell uh, and then to repass the individual mandate for the for the ACA. Now, I understand that some of that, if not all of it, would uh, require abolishing the filibuster. But, you know, I'm curious what what you think of, of those ideas of preempting the court's decisions with legislation. Uh, what do you think about that? Um, so take, for example, Obergefell. I think Obergefell is secure. I don't think that there's any risk that Obergefell um, will be overturned. You got to remember it, the decision was written by Chief Justice Roberts. Right. You um, think that even even in the face of Alito and Thomas's, I believe it was it was concurrence in the denial of cert for Kim Davis, her her petition and Alito's speech to the Federalist Society. You still think that about a Obergefell? Yeah, I do. I, I think that you've got um, uh, five members in and, and maybe six um, adding Kavanaugh and possibly, possibly Gorsuch uh, uh, to Roberts, Breyer, uh, Sotomayor and Kagan. I right. think, but, but who knows, you know, I'm just, it's just my tea leaves. But even if you did, let's say Congress passes a law. Well, what does the law say? The law says, all right, the, in federal, I mean, I mean, what, is, what, what, what does the law say? The law can't say, South Carolina, thou shalt not pass a law that makes marriage a union between a man and a woman, right? right. I mean, what, 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 what business does Congress have of that? That's, that's unconstitutional because you're, it's, that's left to the states, right? Would um, it have to be a constitutional amendment? Exactly, you'd have to have a constitutional amendment. And you'd have to have a constitutional amendment on a lot of these things. Well, you're not going to get you're not going to get a constitutional amendment passed. That's for sure. Yeah, so it requires more than a statute. You, you know, you're never going to get the the supermajority in the state legislatures to support this. So even if it even if we did think that it was necessary to pass legislation, wh what can Congress do to insulate uh, Roe versus Wade? I, I don't I don't think Congress has any quivers to arrows in their quiver to fire. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, you know, very good point. And I think that, at least from what I can see, that, that kind of makes up a good amount of why a lot of people in this country, you know, as you say in this, um, in this Justia article, um, you know, that's why a lot of people look to the court for answers to their, you know, decisions. Um, so I guess my question, is about that article of yours, which I really enjoyed reading. I think it was really great. Um, I'm wondering if you think that in a, in a world where right now, you know, the court is 6-3 progressive, it's, it's not conservative. I guess I'm wondering after your argumentation at the end of that article about how we need to, in this democratic country, use our political power to achieve change why in a world where there is a majority of Democrats on the court, then suddenly it's good to look to the court for answers rather than using our democracy? Well, 
um, you know, there was a brief, brief period where the court was like that. Um, the, the, this, this short window from roughly, you know, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, maybe a wee bit earlier, um, to the late 60s, maybe 67, 68, roughly in that period, give or take on, 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 on any given issue, it might've been a little bit wider than that, where the court was a progressive force. Um, and um, the left, uh, such as it is in this country, came to over-rely on the courts and came to uh, believe that the court the, the courts in general and the court in particular was uh, the place where we would have our rights protected. Uh, and over several decades, they, it, the left, neglected the political process, um, uh, always figuring that the court was the backstop and you would always be safe. Um, uh, your rights would be protected by the court. Well, that was stupid um, because the, the courts a uh, brief little uh, interlude as rights protecting was itself anomalous, uh, not the norm for the United States Supreme Court. That, it is, that is not what the, the, the body is. Uh, is, that a, is that, a, I'm just curious, is that a normative statement you're making? As in, you believe the role of the court is not to be an activist progressive court, which is kind of, setting the standard for society, but more reactionary? Or are you saying? No, I'm not like, saying that the role of the court, I'm not saying what it ought to be. I'm saying what empirically is. what it has been. Gotcha. Right? I would love it if the court were more progressive. That's just, that's just not what the court is. Uh, and except for a brief, I mean, look at the court now. There's really right. only one member of the court. There's one of nine people who is a true progressive. Um, and, uh, you know, that's much more the norm for the United, United States Supreme Court. And you know, the sooner you, the sooner the left comes to recognize that and says, all right, well, that's not our, our the place where we're going to uh, make a difference then the sooner you start to see the sort of thing that has taken place, for instance, uh, in Georgia, right? Uh, where, you know, thanks to the heroic, heroic work of people like Stacey Abrams, who just brought by the tens of thousands, not, 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 not exclusively uh, Ms. Abrams, but others as well, um, and turned a, a red state blue. Absolutely. Uh, that's what will produce lasting change. Now, you know, it is, it is a, one of the reasons that the, the court is such an attractive um, uh, venue is the thought is, well, once the Supreme Court establishes it as a constitutional right, then it's protected, it's insulated from political backlash and, and you don't have to keep fighting those battles. Well, A, that's a myth. Um, look at the slow, gradual whittling away of Roe versus Wade, right? And Roe did not stop the political battles. And in fact, what Roe did was uh, intensify those battles uh, and inflame uh, the conservative uh, wing 
uh, and, and make abortion a battleground uh, and make Roe a target, right? So it doesn't have the effect of, of insulating out uh, from political challenge. Uh, but B, it, it oughtn't. If you, if you look reflexively uh, to the court, you cease to flex and strengthen your muscles, uh, your political muscles, your muscles right. and the democracy, right? You say, all we need to do is send the lawyers in and the lawyers will fix it. And it doesn't matter who votes and it doesn't matter who's engaged at the local level. And it doesn't matter about civics, civil society, just send the lawyers in. Well, that's <laughs> a bad recipe. That's a very bad recipe. Um, and what you, what, you, what you end up doing is having a disengaged uh, electorate. Well, much better that we have an, an engaged, vibrant, out in the streets saying, no, you're not going to do this. That's much better. That's much better. Right. I'm, I'm with you on that. I, you know, you mentioned Roe in the, the whittling down of supposedly enshrined constitutional rights. I thought the example that you brought up in the article uh, of Miranda getting more work in in TV than police stations was spot on. I took a class, uh, psychology and law with uh, two, two Cornell law professors last semester. And we, there was a big portion of, of our class talking about uh, policing and, and questioning um, and interrogations. And Miranda, Miranda rights are essentially ineffective and no, 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 never no, no. used. You don't, you don't need to add the word essentially. You don't need to add that, that <laughs> verb. That, that's not necessary. Absolutely, that's a great example. That's, that's, a, that's the perfect example. And so Miranda exists as this symbol, right? And the court would never overturn. In fact, it's had the opportunity to overturn Miranda and it, and it declined. Why? Because it, Miranda plays this symbolic role, right? right? And it would look bad. Oh, they come under so much attack. Oh, the court turned its back on Miranda, this legendary iconic uh, decision. That's ridiculous. Why would they ever take that hit in the public eye? They just whittle it away and then they can start every decision by saying, Miranda is of course the law. And then the next paragraph says, but we recognize limited exceptions. And then they just drive a truck right through that sort of limited exception. So, you know, why would they ever take the public hit of uh, getting rid of, I, I, I frankly think they're not gonna overturn Roe. I think they'll keep whittling it away until it, you know, is effectively, uh, it no longer serves as the right it was intended to be when uh, Justice Blackman authored Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. So I wanted to I wanted to hear your thoughts on what the solution is then to make the the court that that progressive uh, rights protecting force again. Um, Win elections. Win elections. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that's, that. You know, I think solution. that's some. That's something that we uh, don't focus on enough that elections truly do have consequences. And that has been uh, very clear, um, both in Biden's win in November and uh, Warnock and Ossoff in Georgia. But in terms of the judiciary, does there need to be a restructuring of the Supreme Court of the federal judiciary? Does the Ninth Circuit need to be split up? Uh, if it does, will it ever happen? Do more justices need to be added to the Supreme Court or is it just as good as it is now? Well, for the same, now I know I depart from a lot of my colleagues on the left on this, but for the same reason that I 
um, tell people not to rely on the Supreme Court. I don't rely on court packing schemes to solve your problem. That's just another variation of um, the send in the lawyers to the rescue plan. Um, if you don't focus on the Supreme Court, the Biden and you and you you try to or rather if you don't focus on uh, the the electorate and democracy and 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 building your grassroots movement, and let's say you you raise the number in the Supreme Court from nine to thirteen, well, the next time the Republicans are in charge, they're going to raise it to twenty one, right? I, I mean that's just an arms race that you're going to lose. Right. <laughs> Good luck with that, you know. Um, so just just get it out of your head that the court is your savior. That's the real problem. And the left has just grown up believing, you know, from when they were from when kids were just knee high to a baby, they read stories about Brown v. Board and Thurgood Marshall. And they just think, well, you know, the court is my savior. Well, you know what? Get over it. It ain't. Yeah, well, admittedly, that's <laughs> I wrote a research paper when I think I was a freshman in high school about Thurgood Marshall, and we were learning about, you know, how he was arguing Brown v. Board in front of the court, and then, you know, all of these rights enshrining cases, Matt v. Ohio, Gideon v. Wainwright, that's a big part of the reason why I'm interested in the law, but, you know, it's definitely going through, through shifts and changes. You know, Thurgood Marshall died a disillusioned man. Right. Um, because he, he, his legacy, um, Brown, uh, criminal procedure, voting rights was just being steadily, steadily dismantled. And he didn't have the votes, you know, in the end, it just became him and Justice Brennan. And mm -hmm. then Brennan retired. And it was just him. Well, okay. And, and, and now it's just Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, that's it. You've got one progressive member of the court. Yeah, well, Professor Margulies, we really can't thank you enough for joining us today. This has been a fantastic discussion. Uh, we, Andrew and I, learned a lot, and we hope our listeners did as well. Happy to do it, guys. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Have a great rest of your Thank day. You so Thanks, you too, guys. Be safe. Bye. We thank you for joining us today for our special conversation with Joseph Margulies, Professor of Law and Government at Cornell University and Cornell Law School. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Andrew and I certainly did. Stay tuned for more updates on the City of Ithaca's reimagining of policing proposal. Thank you and enjoy your week.